Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Back with another week of the Tech Ed Podcast, it's Matt Kirkner, your host, and this is my opportunity to explore a whole number of things that I have a tremendous amount of interest in. If you listen to us regularly, you know that I love manufacturing, and there's actually a segment of manufacturing where I spent 17 years of my career called the surface finishing industry, and that is a a sector within the manufacturing industry that I also have a tremendous amount of interest in. I love really cool financial models. I love mergers and acquisitions. I love private equity. And so anytime I get to chat with somebody who's doing some really cool things in terms of how they have set up their financial model, that is a treat. I'm a bit of a political buff and you'll find me some weeks listening to and watching MSNBC and some weeks on Fox News and a good portion of the week somewhere in the middle. And I love economics. So today I get to indulge all of these passions with just a phenomenal guest a good friend of mine, somebody that I've known for well over a decade, probably close to two decades now, in the form of the CEO of an organization called Seal for Life Industries. It's just a real pleasure to welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, my friend, Jeff Orvitz. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on and uh, really looking forward to sharing some uh, thoughts about uh, our company and manufacturing, as you mentioned, with uh, your uh, followers, your podcast. And we are going to learn a ton today, starting with this whole organization, Seal for Life Industries. I want you to just spend a minute or two, Jeff, if you would, telling the audience, what is your organization? What does it do? What's its model? Let's understand it a little bit. Sure. So, Seal for Life Industries is the global infrastructure coatings company focused on protecting, uh, on a very long-term basis, our customers' most critical assets, largely from corrosion and degradation. So our business is to provide coatings, adhesive sealants to a wide variety of infrastructure assets, whether they are uh, above or below ground uh, pipelines for conveying water or energy commodities, or uh, refinery assets, chemical plants, floors, uh, polymeric flooring applications in very critical uh, infrastructure businesses like pharmaceuticals and food processing and uh, beverage processing. Uh, All sorts of things that our customers require a highly engineered coating where the formulation can provide long-term protection of these uh, very very critical assets. And we do that on a global basis. Uh, Seal for Life was founded in uh, July of 2019 as the coatings platform for a private equity group called Arsenal Capital, which is based in New York. And uh, our business is a conglomeration now of some nine acquisitions in, uh, in less than three years all in the infrastructure coding space. The business uh, has 11 manufacturing sites around the world and uh, about uh, 725 employees and continues to grow. And it's growing both uh, organically and by uh, additional M&A as we continue to bolt on uh, a number of companies to help round out our presence in many infrastructure coatings markets around the world. 
this whole idea of the coatings industry, we're going to dive into that a little bit more deeply, but it really affects everybody every day in so many different ways. And in ways that I think a lot of people, just because they may not be aware of it, perhaps take it for granted. Perhaps they, um, they just don't recognize how the coatings industry and the work that you do touches every element of their lives. What should our listeners, if they're not familiar with coatings and finishing, what should they know about this industry? Many of our fellow consumers and citizens know about coatings used inside and outside of your house or on your car, but there are a lot of other coatings applications that maybe aren't quite as well known. So, you know, for example, uh, many and most pharmaceuticals that we take uh, in pill form, say, have a coating on them to help the uh, digestion and metabolism of, of a drug and to do that safely many, many millions of times a day. And most people don't realize that those are, uh, those are coatings, very special ones, of course. Uh, things like eyeglasses, eyewear, your lenses have coatings on them that protect the underlying plastic or glass lens from scratch, or they can darken the lens in response to sunlight. They can block UV light. All of those are done with, uh, again, very specialized coatings. Uh, today, with the uh, changes in uh, clothing, as with the onset of, of very specialized and engineered fabrics, most of those are coated so they protect against uh, damage from rain or, or other uh, soils and chemicals to help make them uh, more durable, more comfortable, to wear better. All done with, uh, again, specialized coatings that most, uh, most people probably wouldn't think about. Interesting. Yeah. It's, there's so many different aspects of, of our daily lives that the coatings affect. And you, you come up with some great examples. We don't think about pharmaceuticals. We don't think about our eyeglasses. Maybe don't think about textiles when we think about the coatings industry, but really is ubiquitous. I want to dive in a little bit, Jeff, into this whole M&A model that you have. You suggested nine acquisitions in the last three years, which is really, really impressive. That's just an incredible rate to be adding companies to, to your organizations. You talked about, and one of the things you mentioned uh, in our first question was just your laser focus on a really specific type of company or really specific market space that you're interested in growing in. And I think there's a lesson there for folks that maybe haven't spent as much time on the M&A side of the world is really knowing what you are and what you want to be. And, and also important to know what you don't want to be and make sure that you keep your focus and don't wander too far out of that lane so that you can continue to have people focusing their time on their highest and best use. You can continue to make sure you're doing what you know you're good at. I want to talk about that a little bit. Now, you've invested nine different brands over the course of the last three years. What is it that you look for and what does Seal for Life Industries look for when you're thinking about adding another company to your portfolio and your family? Sure. The uh, I think focus is a, is a great word, Matt. And, and the reason is, you know, we've tried to keep our platform here at Seal for Life uh, intensely focused on, on global infrastructure, coatings protection, and protection of key assets. And if you think about the world of coatings, it's obviously, it's very, very large, well over $100 billion in, in revenue by most studies that you see today. Even though the coatings industry has consolidated significantly in the last 25 years, and you see the emergence of very large players, you know, companies like, like Sherwin-Williams and PPG and Axo and Exalta and Hempel and Yotin, uh, Nippon, of course, in, uh, in Asia. These companies have grown a lot by acquisition over time, yet 
even with that industry consolidation, there are still thousands of small coatings companies all over the world. Most of them have some type of niche, whether it's technology, market access, uh, customer relationships, that make sense for companies like ourselves and, and others to uh, bring into their portfolio. So we've been very successful at focusing on leading global infrastructure technology businesses that can further augment the Seal for Life platform and vision of being the premier provider of infrastructure coatings and sealants around the world. So some examples of that are businesses like, uh, like our Life Flask platform, where this is a business that specializes in 100% uh, solids polyurethane coatings that are used in uh, everywhere from steel water pipe uh, exterior coatings market to mining applications for protection of degradation of assets. And these coatings are quite special in that they're applied with you know, the expectation of many decades of performance, yet they, we actually have a USDA bio-based certification for these technologies, which fits in very well with our sustainability strategy, which is something very important to us here at Seal for Life. Uh, another great example is uh, our Verdia floor coatings business. This is a polymeric floor coatings company that really specializes in what's, uh, what's known as polyurethane cement or urethane concrete, polymer concrete coatings that have to withstand uh, factory applications where the floor has to be steam cleaned or acid cleaned, really intense environments. And these coatings uh, do that incredibly well. So we look for those type of technology niches that allow us access into markets that uh, maybe uh, some of the larger coatings companies don't even have. Another example, and this came to us with uh, the base platform of Seal for Life Industries, is our uh, Stopac viscoelastic uh, technology. This is absolutely phenomenal material science that uh, results in a coating that can be put over the outside of just about anything to give it extreme corrosion protection, adhesion, degradation resistance, can even be applied underwater, which we do with this technology, that's absolutely fascinating, and zero VOC, 100% solids, uh, uh, very environmentally friendly solution. So those are some examples of the things that we've been uh, successful at uh, building out our Seal for Life Industries platform here over the last few years. You know, I've known you, Jeff, for a, a number of years now, and, and just the, the brilliance around the, the strategy that you put together here. I just want to kind of play off a couple of the things that you touched on as you went through the, the criteria and the types of companies that, that you like to invest in. You know, in some ways, timing is everything. And whether it's because you're a genius or your timing was just perfect, getting into this whole global infrastructure world when you did, you know, two or three years ago, tremendous amounts of, of resources being invested in that part of the economy, not just here in the U.S., but around the globe. That was brilliant. You talk about the sustainability strategy and having organizations that uh, that you're acquiring that play into that goal. And obviously, that is a huge focus as, as people worry about things like changes in the climate and impact on the environment. That's really, really important. And then this whole idea of bringing technology to bear, talking about some of these cutting-edge technologies that you're utilizing to, to protect the assets that you're protecting. 
Uh, just a really, really interesting strategy. And as people listen to this podcast, we do have a number of young people. We have engineers. We have students in various levels of education, K-12, technical college, universities, thinking about future career pathways and what they want to do. But let's stay on this topic of the coatings industry. And, and I want to talk about careers in that industry. I mean, it's a segment of manufacturing and having spent a lot of time in that space myself, there are a lot of roles in a, in a coatings company and a finishing company that are similar to what you would see in other segments of manufacturing, but there are some that are different. So tell our audience how careers in the coatings industry might be different from those in manufacturing in general. Yeah, great question, Matt. You know, as I look at the coatings industry uh, through, uh, through at least the lens of my career anyway, I see it as being unique from the perspective that Coatings are really a blend of both art and science. You know, coatings are, are used for many different reasons. You know, that we use them at Seal for Life to protect critical infrastructure assets. But there are also a lot of coatings are used to provide decoration and beauty uh, for many, many manufactured goods. This is a space, I think, where people choosing careers in coatings get to leverage both technical skill and creative passion, which uh, I don't think that's common in all manufacturing segments, right? And certainly present here in the coatings industry. That's a fascinating answer. It really is an interesting observation where you get to take this creative license and agency and finding new ways to do things. And there's whole technology and whole science around the appearance of a of a coated part and, and not just what is its function, but also, how is it going to fit into, in an aesthetic sense, into the application? So it's interesting that you took that question in that direction. And I would wholeheartedly agree that there is a tremendous amount of that agency that you can take in a coatings operation. And so for our, our listeners who are considering a future career in manufacturing, uh, focusing on coatings, focusing on finishing a great career, a great route for them to start thinking about. But let's talk now about that landscape for skilled manufacturing in the United States. And obviously, this topic comes up anytime we've got a, a well-known industrial CEO such as yourself on our podcast, because we know that everybody is facing it. But how are you seeing the landscape for skilled manufacturing talent at, at Seal for Life? When we look at our talent base, Matt, you know, we have, we're blessed with the breadth and depth of skills amongst our workforce all over the world, just not just in the United States. As I look at manufacturing uh, here in the U.S., there are many, many job openings. Uh, job openings continue to be quite plentiful for skilled workforce in manufacturing here in this country. We just don't have enough skilled talent coming up through the ranks of our education system, I believe, whether it's, it's college educated or the skilled trades to help continue driving the growth of manufacturing in the United States, which is a critically important component of our country's manufacturing and economic base. If, uh, if you think about what's happened over time, you know, we've not seen the numbers of folks coming in with STEM-based education that manufacturing is going to need both now and in the future as it continues to evolve, which it always does, as you know, and uh, companies are always innovating to, uh, to generate competitive advantage, of course. You know, in fact, I saw a report from the National Science Foundation recently where they projected in the next 15 years, fully 30% 
of all the people that hold science and engineering degrees in the United States will retire. That is a massive skill base uh, loss that will be difficult to replace and hence why I think the uh, potential for people who want to be in manufacturing here in this country, those jobs are going to be plentiful for a very, very long time. And I think that's a, an interesting observation, especially on the professional side of, of STEM. We talk about the skilled trades. We talk about folks coming from you know technical college programs, electromechanical technicians, automation technicians. I mean, we, we certainly have a shortage of those folks. You know, some of the shortage of, let's call it unskilled labor, for lack of a better term, you know, some of that is going to be offset and already has been by, by advancements in automation, advancements in technology. But when it comes to, you know, those manufacturing engineers, when it comes to electrical engineers, chemical engineers, the individuals that I know you rely on in, in all of these organizations that you've acquired over the course of the last three years, you know, 30% of those folks retiring in the next 15 years, which seems like a long time, but that's like 2007 ago, right? <laughs> you know, if, if we had had this conversation in 2007, this would be happening now in the same way that the skills gap, if you will, the shortage of skilled talent kind of didn't sneak up on manufacturing. We've been talking about it for 20 years and didn't do enough about it. And now we're in the situation we are. Here we have this exodus through retirement of 30% of our engineering talent in the next 15 years. I always look at that as a challenge and an opportunity. The challenge, of course, being we're going to need to find more of these people. The opportunity is, man, if you're a young person who's considering a career, think about the demand for those STEM skills, science, technology, engineering, and math in the years to come. And what a great career pathway for them to be thinking about as our economy continues to evolve and we create more and more opportunities inside and outside of manufacturing. And we think about that economy. I need to tell our audience, your command of the U.S. economy and the global economy is, is really fascinating, has been for years. We've had some really interesting conversations over the years about economic trends and so on. So I want to I move the conversation in the, in the direction of the, the economy, both here in the U.S. and globally. What are some of the macroeconomic trends that you have your eyes on? Sure. And thank you for the kind words, Matt. You know, the fact that you and I have a passion for economics is certainly one of the things that unites us. Given how most people view economics, I'm not sure what that says about us. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in, in any case, you know, well, what, what we're looking at today you know, macroeconomically in this country, I think in the near term, are quite impactful, certainly inflation. And that's both in core inflation and then obviously on the consumer side. I believe that inflation in the U.S. is likely to persist longer and more severely than most people are predicting. Uh, we see significant inflation in our supply chain as, as I think from the public statements of many of the large coatings companies uh, are also seeing it as well. And that ultimately does find its way into consumer prices, as, as we all know. So I think uh, inflation is not transitory. I believe, unfortunately, it's going to be with us for quite some time. Another macroeconomic trend I think is quite important is the labor participation rate. You know, this is of the uh, normalized, quote unquote, uh, workforce age, how much of that population is in the labor force over time. You know, that participation rate has not yet recovered. Certainly from where it was maybe uh, six or eight years ago, and certainly has not recovered from the, the pre-pandemic levels. So 
here we are in, in an economy where the labor participation rate is some number of points below where many would like to see it, yet we have over 11 million job openings currently in the United States. So you put that together and it creates uh, additional inflation in terms of wage inflation, which tends to be very, very sticky. When people get paid higher wages, they tend to stick versus the cycling you see maybe on a materials basis uh, in, in many markets or energy uh, inflation, which typically does cycle up and down. So I think that those two things, inflation, the labor participation rate, are things that uh, may be somewhat intertwined that are going to be macroeconomic factors that we should be paying attention to for the near future. I think you're exactly right. And I think any any company that's that's worth its weight is thinking about how they're going to deal with inflation over the course of the next, you know, probably 12 to 24 months, if not longer. So that could be a, an interesting process. Your whole comment about the labor participation rate, you know, I did an entire monologue about a month ago on the podcast, Jeff, uh, where we talked about particularly the number of working age males that are sitting out of the workforce. The number is staggering. I mean, I think the number close to people between the ages of 25 and 54 which is our you know kind of our key demographic for for working age males one in eight of them are sitting out of the workforce and there's a whole variety of reasons for that but that number totals about eight to eight and a half million individuals and to your point we've got 11 million jobs open in the economy you know just to kind of play off of some of these macroeconomic trends we're starting to see now people running up consumer debt we're starting to see people starting to tap into the equity in their houses and it's a little bit scary when we think about where where interest rates may be going here the next year or two but i think that's going to drive some of those folks back into the workforce and let's keep our fingers crossed that we see more and more people coming back into the workforce as, as things roll out but it's going to be an interesting ride here for the next uh, at least 12 to 24 months if not longer so let's kind of now just talk about that a little bit more specific to manufacturing so as you look at the u.s economy the manufacturing economy specifically and you think about reasons for pessimism but also reasons for optimism or maybe where there's some opportunities hiding what, what is it that you think about jeff well i think that you know, look, looking at, at the upside here uh, Matt, you know, reshoring of manufacturing is real. It's happening. Moving manufacturing activity back into uh, the United States and, and North America at large, you know, the past two years have really exposed the dangers and challenges of highly extended global supply chains. Many of our businesses are still dealing with challenges, whether it's availability of, of raw materials or availability of of freight and logistics resources. So the reshoring activity here in the United States, I believe it's real and I believe it will continue for the foreseeable future. On the other hand, you know, I would I would say I don't believe we are investing enough in, and this, and this would cover for me, both the public and the private sector, government and industry, in research and development to further advance core manufacturing technologies. Manufacturing is driven by R&D innovation and providing the next generation products and products that are highly sustainable and provide additional value for consumers all over the world. We, I don't believe currently, we are investing enough in R&D innovation in this country to help manufacturing continue to grow. And let's face it, those two are inextricably linked in so many ways. This whole idea of 
of reshoring, and I'll share some thoughts on that here in just a moment, but but absolutely a trend that's taking place in the manufacturing economy. But as we bring more and more manufacturing closer to its point of consumption back to the United States, investing in research and development to make sure that that manufacturing sector remains relevant and can stay even with, if not ahead of the global economy. One of the things that I think that is happening is that manufacturing is starting to get a little bit more positive attention and we're in you know, general society is starting to understand here in the United States how important our sector is to the way of life here in the U.S. And we had an entire, literally, generation of individuals that could get what they wanted, when they wanted it, at the price they wanted to pay for it, or somewhat at least a reasonable price. When we're in that kind of a mode, it's really easy to take manufacturing for granted. And now we're in this mode where we can't get all that. You know, you go to the store and maybe the brand that you wanted isn't available, or you're shopping for something on Amazon and it's another, you know, 120, 150 days before you can have that landing on your front step. And now I think we're starting to see people really understanding the genuine value that the manufacturing sector has to the overall economy. So I've got my fingers crossed that as that perception changes and people understand how important it is, the work that companies like yours do is to the overall economy that we're going to have, uh, we're going to have some more attention and some good fortune in manufacturing. So that's, that's my reason for optimism. We'll, we'll see how all of that plays out. So I used to ask a question about giving our guests a magic wand and our producer, Melissa Martin made fun of me so frequently for that, that corny question. So I put that one in the back, back in the bag. And now we're, we're giving you a genie that grants you three policy change wishes. And no, you can't wish for three more wishes, but if we, if if we had a manufacturing genie that granted you three policy change wishes that would benefit the manufacturing economy. What would those three things be, Jeff? I always like the magic wand question, uh, Matt. So, <laughs> All right, maybe we'll bring it back. It's two against one. <laughs> I would say increased focus at the education level on STEM uh, training, education, and not just for uh, academia and preparation for, for college and college degrees, but also in the high demand trades. These types of skills are going to be critically important for the future of manufacturing and the future of this country. So increasing focus on STEM education, uh, I think, is is very important. Also, as I just highlighted recently, uh, a few minutes ago, about uh, underinvestment, as I see it in research and development activity, I would like to see policy changes there where the country invests more of its resources in our underlying fundamental R&D technologies. And then the third thing, I think we're in an interesting time here where we've got the opportunity to increase public and private financing mechanisms and capabilities to fund critical investments in things like infrastructure, for example, that not only create jobs for people, which is critically important for the you know the growth of our economy, but also benefit the public by having uh, access to state-of-the-art assets for infrastructure, for example. So I think those three things, the increased focus on, on STEM education, more R&D investment activity, and a higher level of both public and private financing for, for critical investments uh, would be great uh, magic wand initiatives. Love it. Great magic wand initiatives. You can, your first one is certainly going to resonate very, very well 
with our audience, which is increased focus on STEM and training and education as it comes to whether you're on an engineering pathway, a, a technician pathway, direct to workforce, getting more and more people excited about and giving them, equipping them with the skills and the competencies that are necessary in the world of manufacturing, in the world of finishing. So that, that of course, is going to be huge. We've talked about the research and development and seeing more public investment in R&D is going to be critical. And then, as you say, financing infrastructure, which you mentioned does two things. The first one is it benefits the public, and there's no question about that, and also creates jobs. And I want to talk about now creating jobs because there's a pretty big change taking place in your home state of Ohio that is going to create a tremendous number of jobs for individuals there. And it's, it's around this whole world of semiconductors, which I think people don't understand all the intricacies of the supply chain. A big reason why you can't get that electronic device or get that motor vehicle that you want to have as quickly as you wish you could have it is around semiconductors and, and silicone technology. Some of that is going to start turning around. It's going to take a while, but there's a huge investment taking place, a related investment in your home state of Ohio where Intel is making this investment in a new manufacturing operation. So talk with our audience. I want to make sure they understand the scale of this investment and what it's going to mean for the economy of the state of Ohio. Sure. You know, I uh, am privileged to serve on the uh, board of directors for the Ohio Manufacturing Association in Columbus. And uh, in that role, I get to work with uh, many, many manufacturing leaders of, of key businesses here in Ohio, such as Whirlpool and Anheuser-Busch and Honda and many, many other companies, Procter & Gamble, that are critical for Ohio's economy. And this investment by Intel is just absolutely incredible. This is the largest private sector investment in the history of Ohio, which is the third largest manufacturing state in the country wow. uh, behind California and Texas. So it's you know $20 billion commitment at the outset. So no small amount of investment here by Intel uh, with the potential to grow to $100 billion for multiple chip fabs in the uh, central part of Ohio. Uh, will create 20,000 new jobs to manufacture what will be the world's most advanced semiconductors at the angstrom level of resolution. Think about that for a minute. Absolutely incredible development for Ohio, for sure. but also for the country as we're in an environment today where obviously every you know it's front page news why we've got chip shortages all over the place that impact everything from as you mentioned earlier, the ability to, to buy an appliance to getting a new car. So being able to manufacture more of these semiconductors here in the United States is critical. And this is certainly a great development for Ohio as well. Incredible economic impact that that is going to have on Ohio. When you start talking about $20 billion of investment, could be $100 billion, 20,000 new jobs, and, uh, you know, I, I used to be, people were impressed when we used to talk about coatings thicknesses in the micro inches. And here you're talking about angstroms, which is just a, several, several orders of magnitude smaller than a micro inch. Just incredible technology. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch that roll out. Uh, it also, it's going to create some competition for talent. I mean, if you're adding 20,000 new jobs in a sector that's already starving for talent, not just in Ohio, but around the country. And we talked about the role of education. And I'm a huge believer, obviously, that we have to get more and more young people excited about these careers, get them interested in STEM technology when they're in middle school and high school, uh, especially in middle school, so that they're considering that as, as part of their career pathway. But there's another side of that as well. 
And when you think about the people that work in manufacturing, if you run a manufacturing company, yes, we're going to see some, some retirements in certain sectors of our workforce. But if you turn the clock ahead 10, 20 years, you know, the vast majority, well, well over 50% of your people working in your organization 20 years from now are already working there today. So we also have to start thinking about how do we continue to upskill the incumbent workforce as technology continues to change. And as if we make these investments in research and development that, that you're talking about and are a big believer in, that just makes that challenge more and more acute. So I'm a big believer that companies that have an intentional strategy around how they're going to grow and improve and train their internal talent, those are the people that are going to gap everybody else in the same way that, and I know you lived through this when we went through standardized quality, ISO, QS, and TS. And if you implemented that a system such as that, you got way ahead of your competition. Same thing was true 15, 10 years ago with Kaizen and continuous improvement. And now in this in this era of industry 4.0 technology, how are we going to upskill the incumbent workforce? Do you agree that that's a problem? And, and what do you think we ought to do about it? I certainly agree it's a problem. It's also an opportunity, but it it really, for me, Matt, it gets back to you know, the nature of manufacturing technology. Manufacturing technology continues to change rapidly. And uh, whether it's Seal for Life Industries or many thousands of other manufacturing companies, that requires the workforce to continue to develop more skills, deepening their understanding of new technologies, new processes that drive innovation. And I do believe that companies need to be very proactive and intentional in developing and augmenting their skill base amongst their work teams to comment the firm's competitive advantage. We certainly see this in, in all of our manufacturing businesses, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. And I think the term intentional strategy is very appropriate and makes sense and will really help separate the companies that continue to innovate and evolve from the ones that maybe uh, don't move along as fast. Awesome. I, I couldn't agree more. Obviously, that's a huge focus of what we do when we talk about securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. That workforce is, to use the word that we've used a couple of times in the last dialogue, intentional, um, that we need to both inspire and excite young people around careers in STEM and then figure out how we're going to take this vast majority of people that are working in manufacturing and will be for decades to come and give them those skills they need to be relevant as manufacturing technology continues to advance. What a, what a fascinating conversation we've had, Jeff. I want to kind of wrap our time up here today with a question that we ask every single guest on the Tech Ed podcast. And that is, if you could think about the advice that you would give to a high school sophomore as they started thinking about their future pathway, what would that advice be? I would say to today's students, you know, today's modern manufacturing, it's not your father or mother or grandfather or grandmother's factories. When we look at things, and Matt, you and I have talked about this in some other formats about Industry 4.0 and the development of all of these technologies that are increasing automation, efficiency, productivity in our manufacturing plants, these create highly skilled job opportunities that generally pay very high wages and very strong benefits. So I think as U.S. manufacturing continues to grow, these type of jobs are, are great for people to aspire to. I think they will continue to be in plentiful supply for skilled trades and degreed people as well to help drive the growth of manufacturing and result in really 
well-earned, long-life careers that help uh, build people's uh, personal situations and, and circumstances as well over time. I really think that as manufacturing continues to evolve, that it will create these types of job opportunities that are uh, highly attractive, uh, even to our young people today. Couldn't agree more. You know, there's a reason when you drive by a manufacturing plant, such as the the many that you're operating around the globe, you know, here in the U.S., there's there's a lot of like high-end Ford F-150 trucks sitting in those parking lots. And it's not just the the senior executives that are driving those cars. I mean, the these opportunities in manufacturing, incredibly good paying, to your point, also yeah, great benefits and an unbelievable way to spend an entire career, make, make a tremendous amount of money, have a rewarding career, have multiple career pathways. Modern manufacturing is certainly not your parents and your grandparents' manufacturing world. And, and I know that you're not running those kind of companies. You're running highly advanced manufacturing and coatings companies. It's been a pleasure, Jeff, to explore all the work you're doing at Seal for Life to talk a little bit about the economy, to talk about the, the future of the economy, what's going on in manufacturing, what's going on in Ohio. Just a great story. Really appreciate you spending some time with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invite and the opportunity, Matt. And it's great to work with you again on the subject that I know is passionate to both of us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.